As Ken said, we have been in a series on wisdom, and I hope you have enjoyed it as much as I have. I've heard some incredible talks that have really drawn us closer to understanding wisdom. And today, as Ken said, I'm going to look at the New Testament in wisdom. And this is going to be a very personal journey for me, because wisdom has been a central part of my own walk and journey with God. And as we start, I would like you to think about this question. What has shaped my faith? What has shaped your faith as you look back on your life? What has shaped your life? And it could be many things, isn't that right? People, places, activities, different things. Uh, and I know certainly as I look back at my life and I... This August 9th was my 53rd birthday as a Christian when I became a Christian when I was 21. And 53 years is a while. It's been a bit of a journey. And there are so many things that have shaped me. Emmanuel's been a big part of that shaping. But I want to look at it from the perspective of, of wisdom and how wisdom has helped shape my faith, my life, my journey. Um, when I was young... You know, in my first 20 odd years, my life was shaped by dysfunctionality and, and the problems I had, you know, Métis background and dysfunctional family and my own problems and fears and introversions and failure. Uh, and when I became a Christian at 21, I was between my third and fourth years of university at University of British Columbia. I was studying honors mathematics and the Lord. Uh, you know, reached out to me, touched my heart. And it started a fundamental shift from a life of, of fear and failure and embarrassment and so many other things to a life of growth. And wisdom played a big part in that. The first 10 years of my faith, in the, but basically the 70s, uh, some of you don't remember the 70s, you weren't there yet, <laughs> weren't here yet, but in the 70s, I was shaped by an intense desire to know God. I became a Christian, as I said, on August 9th. The very next morning, I, I took a bus downtown Vancouver and, and bought a Greek in a linear, bought a, a Strong's Concordance, and, and I, I read the Bible voraciously. Uh, I graduated from UBC in 71, and then Trish and I were married in 72, and went to Bible college for four years, and, and I just couldn't get enough of the word. And just before I graduated in, in, uh, in 76, the, the Bible college approached me and asked if I would come on as a faculty member, which shocked you know, the, the bejesus out of me, because I thought, why would they ask me? But I was asked to teach, and one of the things I was asked to teach was Exegesis, how to study the Bible. And uh, I, I, I taught many things, but primarily New Testament, but I also got to teach wisdom literature. Uh, and so during the 80s, a fun, I made another fundamental shift from one of, as I said earlier, one of, of living in constant fear and failure and embarrassment toxic self-talk and put-down. I became a Christian and I didn't realize but how much of that 
early part of my life, I just Christianized. As a Christian, I still lived with a lot of fear because I felt a lot of failure. I was just never good enough as a Christian and embarrassed before God. And, and, and I started to understand that I knew way more than I was living. Have you been in that place? You know so much, but you feel like you're falling so short. Things I don't want to do, I'm doing, and who's going to save me, you know? Uh, and I was very frustrated in my faith. The one hand, I, I just, just got so excited about studying the Word and learning so much. But I knew way more than I was living. And that was a difficult time for me. And then in the 80s, as I continued my teaching at the Bible College, I became eventually the chairman of the Bible Theology Department and stuff. And I got to choose my courses. And, and besides teaching Greek, which was my, my, my favorite thing, I got to teach some other things that really impacted my life. It made me shift away, even from a Christian, somewhat from, and start to work on, as a Christian, the fear I still held. The sense of failure that I still struggled with. The embarrassment I still had. And there were three things. I got to teach, as I said, the wisdom literature. And I loved teaching wisdom literature. Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes primarily. And, uh, and I, I taught that for many, many years. And so I had a chance to go into it really deep. I also loved the Gospel of John. I got to teach John for many, many years. I had this wonderful 39-hour class on John. And boy, we got to study that in, in, in real detail. And then I started to study on illumination, the role of the Holy Spirit in making Scripture alive to us. And these three things through the 80s swirled in my mind, in my heart, in my life. Have you had that? You know, those things, and they're all intertwined, all taking place at the same time. And they ultimately led to me deciding to leave the Bible College in 89 and come here to Vancouver, which is when Trish and I came here to Emmanuel. Because I, I knew after studying these that for me, my journey was not to be one in academics. I mean, when I was doing my master's, I worked like a dog. Because I, again, I was, had this thirst to know God. And I, and I was going to go to Europe and do my doctorate in Greek. And I can remember just working so hard, graduating summa cum laude. And, and you know, put into who's who in colleges in America. Because of my studies at, 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 you know, at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And I had it all up here. And God made it very clear to me. That was not the path he wanted for me. He wanted me to be involved in life more directly. And we left Prairie, where we taught for all those years, not knowing what we would do, only that God would open a door for me to be involved in people. And of course, as those of you who know me here know that he opened a door for me to be involved in the career world, particularly with indigenous peoples and other people who are marginalized by our, our society. And I, I still work in that now. And I want to look at these three things. Because ultimately, these point us to Jesus and what walking with God really means beyond just knowing about him. And uh, 
wisdom. I was so excited as I studied wisdom, uh, this part in Proverbs 1, wisdom calls aloud in the street, raises her voice in the public squares. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out in the gateways of the city. She makes a speech. And I, this was such an encouragement to me that in all of my confusion and frustration with my Christian life, wisdom was calling out to me in the busyness of my life. See, God reaches out to us, not just when we come here on Sunday morning. Isn't that right? God is calling to us every moment of our day. In our week, on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, whatever we're doing, he is calling out to us there. In our very busyness. In a hustle and bustle of life. In the ups and downs of it all. Crying out to us. Trying to get our attention. Trying to call us to himself. And that was so exciting to me. He wants to get my attention. And what does he want to share? Why does he want my attention? He says, if you had responded to my rebuke, I would have poured out my heart to you and made my thoughts known to you. And now he's calling out to me, saying to me, and this, was, this struck me, and the more I studied this over, over the 80s, the more this was so amazing to me. God himself wants to share his heart with me. Isn't that an incredible thought? He's not giving me just a list of, because I was in a context of Bible college, there was a lot of rules and regulations and lists of what to do and what not to do. It wasn't about lists, it wasn't about rules, it wasn't about, uh, you know, uh, legalism, all that stuff. It was about a God who wants to share his heart, his life. That was so astonishing to me. And meant so much to me. And why does he want to share his life, his thoughts with me? It's because he wants to guide me on my journey, on my life. It wasn't about arriving and being perfect and having it all together. It was about being on a walk of life, a journey of life, where he would walk with me and guide me and my steps. I didn't have it all, I have to have it all together today, or tomorrow, the next day, or next month. Fortunately, he's very patient. <laughs> 50 years later, I still don't have it all together, but he's never left me. Then he says, as we walk with him, then you will understand what's right and just and fair, every, every good path. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will protect you and understanding will guard you. And you start to understand that wisdom is more than rules and stuff like that. It's more than knowledge. You see, I knew a lot, but I wasn't living a lot. Wisdom is what enables us to know what to do with the knowledge we have. Isn't that right? Wisdom is what enables us to know what to do in real life with the knowledge that we have about God. And so... Ken's brought this, and everybody's brought this skillful living in everyday life. But that's actually incomplete. There are a lot of people skilled in life. It's, it's something deeper than that. It's the most fundamental skill of all. Practical righteousness before God in every area of life. Knowing how to live with God and for God in everything that I do. 
every aspect of my life, not just what I do here at church on Sunday morning, but what I do when I'm at home, how I interact, you know, when I'm working with the people that I work with, you know, especially when I'm working with the marginalized people that I work with, how would God want me to live? It's practical righteousness before God. That is slightly different than just knowing how to live stuff in life. I love Derek Kidder's teaching on wisdom. If you ever get a chance to read some of his stuff, it's a man who died far too early in a car accident, actually. He says, the wisdom literature is the OTs, the Old Testament's antidote to one of the diseases of religion, unreality. Unreality. And then he says, its function in Scripture is to put godliness into working clothes. Wisdom as a guide for every man. Wisdom is a guide for every man. That means it's a guide for you, it's a guide for me in the lives that we live. All the ups and downs, good and bad, long and short, whatever we're going through, God wants to share his wisdom to show, show us how to live, that we might have a full life. When I think of especially the Proverbs, one of the interesting things of Proverbs, it's often described as pearls of wisdom, right? Because it's all these individual things. And that reminds me of Lego. What does that got to do with pearls of wisdom? Well, very simply, the word Lego means, two Danish words meaning play well. And isn't that true of Lego, right? It's a big thing to play well with Lego. But you know, those pearls of wisdom that God gives us, they give us the potential not just to play well, but to live well. To live well. That's what God has for us. That's the life he has for us. To live well. And when you study all of wisdom literature, you start to understand a very simple concept we don't always talk about. But it is very important to understanding biblical wisdom literature. Because it's coming from this perspective. You see, they believe that in wisdom, God created the world. Isn't that right? He spoke and he created this world as we know it. Everything in it. Isn't that right? It is his creation. But God also created me in his wisdom. He knit me in my mother's womb. I am his unique creation. You are his unique creation. And they put these two together. If God created this world, and God created me, who knows how I should live in this world? God, right? And so the, the thought came, his wisdom knows how I, his creation, can best live in his world. That was fundamental to it. And wisdom was, was, was meant to bring it all together. All of life, together. Now where does John come in? John has a very similar thrust as the wisdom literature. Wisdom literature is all about life, isn't it? Living our lives to the full for God. Well, in the Gospel of John, we're told he didn't just come to save us from our sins. I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. He didn't just come to save me, but to enable me to live a full life. And John takes us a step further from wisdom literature. You see, in wisdom literature, you have people, uh, older people, sharing from their life experience about wisdom in life. And uh, the reality is oftentimes we look at the old as being wise, although some days I don't feel very wise, but the reality is that 
you can learn something fairly quick, but often wisdom takes experience and time, doesn't it? How many of you have had issues that, that God's worked in your life and it's taken a long time for God to teach it to you, to work it out, right? And he's very patient and he does that. But you see, in John, it's a step further. It's not learning about some observation. It's not memorizing some verses about, you know, how am I like the ant or, or something else like that that you might find, although those are important. In John, we learn that God shares through Christ his very life with us. He does not want us just to have a good life. He wants us to have his life. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that a step further than just completing a list of do's and don'ts and what's good and bad? We're talking about our relationship here with the very God of the universe who wants to share his life with us. And he invites us to join with him in the very abiding relationship he has with his father. In the Gospel of John, about one quarter of the references to Patras' father in the New Testament occur only in the Gospel of John. Because it's a book showing the relationship between father, the father and the divine son. And, and he says this. He invites us. As the father has loved me, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. He's saying, I have this loving, abiding relationship with my Father and I invite you into it. I invite you to be with me in this relationship. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Indeed, I have called you friends for everything. You hear that? Everything that I've learned from my father, I have made known to you. When you hold that word of God in your hand, you have everything that Jesus lived his life on earth based on. He did not live on anything other than you and I have access to. Because he says, everything that I've learned. And then how do we make that personal? He says, all that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Do you think we're missing anything that we need to live our Christian lives? According to this, no, we have it all. We do have it all. And this is what struck me as I, as I was studying these things through the 80s. Uh, and when I taught Bible study, formal Bible study, what they call exegesis, whether it would be with Greek exegesis or English exegesis, you always taught observation, learn to see what's in the text. You taught uh, questioning, to search it. you taught interpretation, what does this mean, what I see, correlation, how does this fit in the Bible, in life. And then at the end, they take on and apply it to life, application. And I started to realize how much I knew of those first three, how little I knew of application. And that was the work of the Spirit. See, the Spirit is the one who takes it from being mere words to being life for us. And so I started studying uh, illumination of the Holy Spirit. The role of the Holy Spirit in making Scripture alive and practical and living and life-changing for us. 
In particular, I focused on this verse, 1 Corinthians 2.14. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Uh, <clears throat> I, I spent seven years studying this one verse in, while I was doing my master's work, my MA in New Testament. If anybody's interested, here's a 125-page <laughs> detailed thesis uh, on this, and, and, I, and I, I just absorb myself in understanding the role of the Holy Spirit. Uh, my thesis advisor even said that I changed his view on illumination, which was quite good to hear. Um, but I started to realize, to my study, to my coming to church, to my trying to live these things out in life, I needed to put the Holy Spirit in a lot more important position in my practical walk. It wasn't how much I learned, how much I studied, all the things I tried to do to please him. It was about the fact that God, through Jesus, has given us his Holy Spirit to dwell within us. Isn't that right? And that Holy Spirit has the ability to do what we cannot do in, of our, in and of ourselves. That's a terrible sequence of words. <laughs> uh, the Holy Spirit is the one who knows how to take the word of God and say, this is how this should work out in your life. We can't do that by ourselves. That's why we often have this problem of knowing way more than we live. It's related to the spirit. And uh, the question that you realize is that he enables me to discern the things of God so that I can live a full life. And I, so I started... While I was studying wisdom literature and studying John, studying the world of the spirit and making this all alive. We're talking about a 10-year process here. Uh, so the question is, what are the things of God that the spirit makes alive to us? Well, in the context of 1 to 4 of 1 of Corinthians, uh, it's really talking about Jesus. Scripture makes Jesus alive to us. So, and Ken, I believe, read this a few weeks ago. 1 Corinthians 1, 20, 25. Who is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through his wisdom did not know him. I have not seen, nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for him. God was pleased because we couldn't do it in ourselves. He was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. What was that? <clears throat> Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. We know what we want. This is what we need. And God says, no, what you need is we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. We preach of a crucified Jesus, who died on the cross to bear our, the penalty for our sins and to be resurrected from the dead to go to be seated with his father so that he could go and say, I've prepared a place for you and where I am, you're going to be with me. That's the message, isn't that right? That's a life-changing message. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. But to, for the foolishness of man is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. 
He's the wisdom of God. What does he mean by that? A few verses later, verse 30. It is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. God did in Jesus what we could not do in ourselves. He, even though we're sinners, died so we might be made righteousness in him. And he gave us his righteousness so that we might be accepted by God and become part of God's family so that we may be able to know what is right and know how to live. Holiness or sanctification. He has set us apart for God, the wisdom to know how to do that. And it's not that he's set apart from God. I know how to work in your life to transform you into the image of the one who has saved you. He is our sanctification and he is our redemption. That is, he has redeemed us or saved us from sin and death, the evil one. Things we could not find on ourselves. We could not know. God knew what to do. He had his plan. The lamb slain from the foundation of the earth that we might find righteousness and holiness and redemption. All those things we really want in our life. Isn't that right? Who's going to rescue you from the sins you're struggling with in your life? You don't have the strength, do you? Jesus does. Who's going to guide you in how to live a life that's holy and godly in all of your life? You can't do it by yourself, can you? It's Jesus and his spirit in us enables us. Who keeps us right with his father? Jesus does. And he's the power of God. And this is where another step beyond wisdom literature Many words, Greek words for power. This particular word is dunamis. We get a word dynamite from it. But it means ability or capability. It's from the verb dunamai. I am able. God, Christ is the power of God. Not just that he's a strong, mighty, powerful God. But beyond that, he is the one who gives us the ability. The capability to actually live with him. Isn't that something? That, that was such an eye-opener for me, such a wonderful thing. Uh, and I was thinking of Philippians. I used to teach Philippians for many years. In Philippians 2, think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God and didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. No, not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave becoming human, becoming like you, becoming like me, yet without sin. Having become human, he stayed human, and it was an incredible humbling process. He didn't claim uh, special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death, the worst kind of death at that Crucifixion. Do you hear the words that he just said there? When Jesus lived his 33 odd years of life and did all that he did, he lived it as a human. He was still fully God, but he set that aside. He didn't claim, he didn't draw on that. He drew on his father. In that abiding relationship we saw in John, he said, I only do what I see my father doing. Jesus did not use anything that you or I do not have access to right now, this moment in our lives. The presence of God and the spirit of God to live for him. 
And he did that so that he might show us and give to us the ability to do it ourselves. Therefore, my dear friends, he goes on, as you've always obeyed, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And he is picked up a little bit later in chapter 4. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. This verb, who gives me strength, is endudamai. To make someone able to give capable capability to. So we could translate it, I can do everything through him who makes me able. That's something that I keep going back to when I find myself so frustrated sometimes. How do I work this out? And I go back to this. God knows how to make me able. God knows. Jesus knows. That's why he is not just the wisdom of God, but he is the power of God. He is, has the power to give you the ability through his presence in our lives. Now, just very quickly, and I, probably longer than I should be, my apologies. This is all in the context of 1 Corinthians 1 to 4, where there's, he's talking about a danger. A danger of a church that is divided, that's full of divisiveness for all kinds of issues. But fundamentally, it's because people had different perspectives of, on wisdom and power, and they were focusing on things other than Christ. I believe this is a chapter that we as a church need to be in prayer and praying over the church in our world today and our countries. Divisiveness is crippling our countries, is it not? I'm sorry, it is. The U.S. government, House of Representatives, they can't even... Pick a speaker, even though they've got a majority, because they're so divided. Isn't that right? And we see in churches, divisions, pastors being fired all over the place if they don't have a partic particular uh, uh, view. We know some close friends, Carol and Rob, know them as well, you know, the campuses. They, before the pandemic, just before the pandemic, they've been in missions their whole life. They were traveling in the States, and they went to one church on a Sunday morning, and they went to the door, and they were asked at the door, are you Republican or Democrat? And they, they told him, if you're a Democrat, you're not welcome here. I'm sorry, but in Christ there's no male, female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, Republican or Democrat, liberal, conservative, NDP, whatever. Isn't that right? We are one in Christ, not in our political parties and all this other stuff. And so in the first four chapters, you have this continual thing between wisdom and power. And you have the world's wisdom, the world's power, what they think is right. And you have the wisdom and power of God in the crucified Christ. And so when you read it, you've got to watch the language. Because the world, when they look at it, they see the cross, they see Christ as foolish and, and weak. But unfortunately, this leads to incredible divisiveness. And so throughout those chapters, he's talking about the division that was going on in different forms. There's only, I'll mention it's one form within this church. Uh, and, and he goes on in, in chapter 3. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, that is, those who through the Spirit can discern the things of God, but as worldly, 
mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not ready yet. Indeed, you are not ready. You are still worldly. Is it because they were watching movies or dancing or smoking or drinking? The, the list that I had when I was uh, learned when I was a new Christian, those are the things that Christians don't do, right? For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? That is, men without the Spirit. The Spirit is meant to come and bring unity. Isn't that right? For when one says, I follow Paul, another says, I follow Paulus, are you not mere men? And so God sees the world's wisdom, the world's power as foolishness and weakness. And that brings unity. I'm going to just say this. The other thing, focus on other things other than Christ. You see, the message, the wisdom and power of God is in Christ crucified. Where should my faith be centered? The center of my faith should be Jesus, who died for us and lives for us, has given us his spirit. The Jews and the Greeks, they wanted something else. They wanted Christ plus, plus signs, plus human wisdom. The trouble with that is what you end up having is no, you don't have Christ. You have something else at the center of your life because that becomes the real arbitrator. That's what's really feeding your faith. Our faith should have Christ, the power and wisdom of God at the center. And through his living spirit, he wants to lead and guide and direct us into how that applies into all of our life. Every aspect of it. Isn't that right? It should go from here, the spirit, out into that world. But the danger that has happened throughout history is that secondary objects become primary. And for some it's the family, for some it's work, for some it's religion, it's religion or race or gender or whatever. Right now we have a big thing with politics going on where people put politics at the center of their faith. That is unbiblical. Let's push Christ aside. I'm sorry, I have no patience with that. There's a book right now, Losing Our Religion, an altar call for evangelical America, Russell Moore. Russell Moore was a leader within the Southern Baptist Convention. He was in charge of the, of the group that was studying the, uh, the cases of sexual abuse by pastors in the Southern Baptist Convention. Several hundred of them, about 350, I think. And the denomination refused to address the issue because he said it was bad testimony. People would give less. And he said, no, no, we, we have to, as Christians, this is the right thing to do. And he was shoved out. He was crucified because he held that position. And he's written this book. And he's talking about this divisiveness and this shift that's happening. And the book was the result of having multiple pastors tell me essentially the same story about quoting the Sermon on the Mount. In their preaching, turn the other cheek. And then to have someone come up after and say, Why, where did you get those liberal talking points? Is turning the other cheek a liberal talking point? For some it is. But is it? And that was alarming to me. And what was alarming to me is that in most of those scenarios, what the pastor would say, I'm literally quoting Jesus Christ. The response would not be, I apologize. The response would be, yes, but that doesn't work anymore. That's weak. That's weak. 
It doesn't work anymore. And when we get to the point where the teachings of Jesus himself are seen as subversive to us, then we're in a crisis. And I want to say to you something that I've been following for over 50 years now. It is not weak. It is not weak. It is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And it is the only thing that can change and transform our lives. Isn't that right? And our churches and our country and our world. And what would happen if we kept Christ at the center? You ever think about that? I do. What would happen if we actually kept Christ at the center? His teachings, his values, his principles, his will, his life, his spirit. Kept that at the center. And allowed that to touch all these areas. Just look at the politics. What would happen if even just this one verse of Jesus, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. What would happen in our countries today if, if our leaders would take that to heart? Would that be transforming? You betcha. Isn't that right? I know that in the work that I do, where I work with marginalized people groups, uh, I, I, I've sought practically take the biblical teachings of Christ and, and the scripture and put them into real practice in real life. And uh, this, this one verse, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful and I know that full well. I work with so many hurting people who do not know that they are God's creation and that God did not make a mistake in creating them. And that has transformed the way that I do the work that I do with these marginalized groups around the country. And the interesting thing is, I get invited, those of you who know the work that I do, all over the world to, do, to talk about you know, reaching out to marginalized people groups. And, but the funny thing is, they're uneasy about me, the people who bring me in. This, one of my last major international trips in 2019 was the 10-week trip I did to the state of Victoria with the, fact, with the Department of Education want me to bring in to help them work through how do they be more effective with, with indigenous kids and immigrant refugee kids and the disabled and kids in care, kids in prisons. And so they bring me over 10 weeks, pay me big money to come and to teach hundreds of the teachers to meet with, with their leaders and work through curriculum and all that. Yet the very first day I'm there, uh, the person who brought me in and I'd become a good friend with her because of other trips I'd had there, and, and she'd called together 350 leaders in education from the state for me to talk to them for an hour about hope. And she says, I'm, I ref I'm embarrassed that I have to say this. I'm embarrassed. But the deputy minister asked me to say, could you ask him to tone down the spirituality? And she said, I had to say it but I don't think you need to. As wisdom cries out in the business of life, so too Christ calls out to us, invites us to share his life. Wisdom is at the busyness of our life. Isn't that right? Crying out. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Where is that? The business of our lives. Isn't that right?
Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That's the call of Christ, the crucified Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For I am gentle and humble in heart. I'm not standing over you with a hammer to hit you every time you fail. For you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And my response very simply is, I've got, you can read the PowerPoint, I've got a couple of verses, but uh, I, I often share this with people. Lord, I believe, help them my unbelief. I'm still trying to work these, this out in my life practically, and I will be to the day I die. Now I'm trying to figure out how that fits into old age and my body falling apart, right? How do I live wisely? How do I know that life of God, even though this is going, right? He wants to be with us every moment through all of life. As we've been studying literature, wisdom literature, wisdom, I want you to go home today and ask yourself, what do I want to shape my life. I want Jesus, the power of God and the wisdom of God to shape mine. Thank you.